This is the Young Farmers Podcast. I'm Lindsay Lusher Shute. Karen Washington is one of the most important food and farming activists of our day. From starting the Garden of Happiness in the Bronx to Black urban growers and now Rise and Root Farm, she is modeling a new food system based on equity, social capital, and health. Karen is someone I've admired for a very long time, and I'm grateful that she was able to take an hour from the farm to talk about her family, her journey to becoming an activist, and her reaction to the most recent census of agriculture that found that there are only 165 Black farmers left in New York State. Hi, I'm Emily Mickley Doyle, farmer at Sprout Nola and organizer with the Greater New Orleans Growers Alliance. I've been a member of the National Young Farmers Coalition since 2013 because I believe that young people can be torchbearers for current and future generations in creating community-based food systems. For $35 a year, you can join too. In addition to being part of a bright and just future for agriculture in the United States, you'll also get discounts like 10% off high mowing organic seeds and 15% off Rosie's workwear for women. To join, go to youngfarmers.org. Karen, I have to say one of the things that I just admire so much about you is your sense of empathy and just this genuine love for people that, I don't know, it's just, it sort of pours out of you um, in a way that I just so appreciate. And I feel like you just have a unique way of bringing bringing people into a conversation. Where did you, where did you get that from? Who, who in your life was your model? I think, I, first of all, I was like, I had the greatest parents in the world. I really did. Um, just growing up, um, my father was very personable, and he would bring all types of people to our house. Um, and my parents always taught us how to treat people fairly and with respect. And so um, I learned very, uh, I, at a young, at very young age how to treat people with respect. But I think also what I learned from them is humility and just um, being able to care about people, just care about people. And I think I owe that to my parents because I no longer have them. I try to instill their values, you know, and everything that they've given me, I try to present them in a way on how I conduct myself. So when people see me and they see how I am, that's a reflection of my parents. And I have been lucky enough to, again, bring up two children, my daughter and my son, to have the same trait. Um, I think I also, um, having a profession as a physical therapist, really learning um, how to treat people, learning to be thankful for what you have, and so really expanding my humanity and my compassion. And then I think also just to, um, to have this to, uh, inner spirit of, of, of spirituality. I'm not saying I'm religious, but I know that there is a creator out there and that, um, and sometimes just to stop and just be thankful that, this life that you have is very short and that how are you going to make a difference in the life that you have? The life you have is a gift. And so how do you make sure that each and every, each and every day you try to do some sort of impact in either caring for people, caring for the land, caring for animals, 
And so I live a very, very great and happy life because I think I have that intention. I have that, that intention of people and giving and caring. And I'm grateful for my parents instilling that in me. Well, it, it shows. And I think you help a lot of other people find, find that in themselves as well. So growing up, you grew up on the Lower East Side, and it might have been in the same article you were talking about, and I had to ask you about this, <laughs> you talked about watching farm shows before Saturday yeah. <laughs> morning <laughs> cartoons. Like, what show were you watching, and so was, why, <laughs> why was that interesting <laughs> to you? So, you know, growing up, um, as a child, during the week you had school, so weekends were the time that you could um, watch cartoons. And so, before Heckle and Jekyll and Mighty Mouse <laughs> came the farm, came the farm report. During it ran from six to six thirty, and I was just mesmerized because I'm saying, you know, I lived in a project, and I'm saying, wow, here is this farm, here's animals, and I always picture myself maybe one day I can you know, have a farm and I can be out there on the country. To be honest with you, I wanted to be a scientist. Growing up, I wanted to find a cure for cancer. That's what my aspiration as a, as a young child, I know I wanted to do something in the medical field or in the science field. So that's what I wanted to do growing up. So I guess you've, you've done it, done it all now at this point with physical therapy and, yeah, and, and farming. farming, which involves a lot of science too. Did your any anyone in your family have any exposure to agriculture? My parents, grandparents, grandparents never never talked about farming. But it's so ironic, you know. I'm thinking like, what's my relationship to food? So my father was always into produce. He worked in produce at at supermarkets, and I remember growing up, he became the first black produce manager of this chain called Met Food. Which yeah, is on the lower side. Lynette, yeah, yeah. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, he always brought home, we always had fresh produce. And my father also was a fisherman. So, on that block, my, between he was a produce, fisherman. He was a fisherman on Saturday. He would like I, go to the, ri- the, ri- like the river? Yeah, this is why I know all these Italian men, Irish men, Puerto Rican men, because my father would bring them to our house. They would leave, like, they come to our house at 4 o'clock in the morning, and my father, I, I guess they went out to Long Island, to Montauk, and they would fish for hours. So my father would bring home so much fish, and so it, it was like the neighborhood would, you know, just come to our house as my mother had so much fish. She would, like, wrap them up in newspaper and give fish away. and was telling my father, we can't, we, can't, we can't feed any more fish. But that was the neighborhood thing. My father was a fisherman, and then my father was a produce. And, you know, thinking about that now as I'm older, when people ask about produce, and then I remember when my father, so my father then um, left the produce company to go to the dark side, I call it the dark side, because he left being a produce manager to get a job as a salesman for Drake's Cakes. And then when he retired, he ended up, starting like a little farm stand in Howard Beach. You know, all wow. of a sudden, just, yes, it's coming back to me. It's like, I'm from what? a farm, farm and fishing family. This is Yes. <laughs> I mean, now that I, Second you know, generation. People, ask me, people ask me, like, you know, what's my relationship? And then I, all of a sudden, it just like dawned on me what my father did, you know? And so, like I said, 
I know he. I know my mother and father are, are in heaven, and they are so proud. They're they are beaming. <laughs> they are having a time of their life. You know, me ending up being a farmer. They like, oh my goodness, it's so funny how things just turn around. When your dad had a farm stand on Long Island, was he growing the produce, or was he bring he was bringing it in from other places and and marketing it? Yeah. Right. So it was Howard. He was in, let me tell you something. He was in Howard Beach. And so Howard Beach, I think it's in Queens. And Howard Beach at that time was going through a lot of racial turmoil. But my father had a personality that transcended race. He had a small, he knew how to get along with everybody. It was something that I guess I get that personality from him. There's something about his personality that he was able to, like I said, transcend race in, um, at a point where there was a lot of racism going on. And for him to go out to Howard Beach at that time was really, really, I mean, it was scary for us. But my father felt like, you know, you know I know the people I worked out there. Because he would go, he, was, he, he put his farm stand on there, the route that he had as a salesperson for Drake's Cakes, so that the people already knew who he was. Was that more like that farm stand model? Was that more something that you would see more often um, when you were when you were younger? Like, what what did that look like actually? Well, it was like you know, like if you would like a side, like a, along the road, mm. a side where he had. Um, he didn't have a tent. He had just like boxes of produce and he set like up on the table or boxes upon boxes. And he was just selling them, selling, selling it like that. And I remember growing up because we, when we moved from the Lower East Side, we moved to Harlem. And I remember even in the Lower East Side, you know, there were always stands, fruit and vegetable stands. And so when we moved in Harlem the same way to a fruit and vegetable stands. And I remember they used to have the watermelon guys. And he would ring out, watermelon, watermelon, get your ice. And I remember that, hearing that um, at my, from my grandmother's house, because she lived in Harlem. And we would, you know, meet the watermelon man and, um, and buy um, vegetables from him. And then when we moved to Harlem, um, there was a vegetable man who would always park his truck. Uh, in front of our building, and so um, my mom would send us downstairs to buy fruits and vegetables from him as well. So the business, it wasn't brick and mortar, and it was people just trying to make a living, trying to fill a void that wasn't in communities. And so I, I missed that. I missed that element of entrepreneurship, of, you know, people seeing a void and trying to fill that void um, not only to make money for themselves, but providing fresh vegetables, fruits and vegetables in neighborhoods that didn't have it. You've talked a, a great deal and really coined this term food apartheid. And I wonder, yeah. do you, I, I guess, in the sort of more less formal economy, um, and those individuals being entrepreneurs and sort of filling in those gaps um, where opportunity existed, it seems like that made for a more vibrant and likely stronger food system. 
I'm wondering what what differences do you see in the city, you know, across across your lifetime? Do you have you seen uh, that food, that trend of food apartheid, the existence of food apartheid? Has that grown and sort of how has has that evolved with the economy of of food in, in New York? Well, food has become a commodity, a commodity, and so food has definitely been has been placed has has monetary value on it, and that it has segregated, you know, groups of people. And I say that because I always ask people, you know, within these United States, why do we have hunger poverty? Well, yeah, we're the richest country in the world. We have hunger and poverty, and we have homelessness. And it's, it's uncalled for. Our value system has changed. Our value system has changed so much that we see that in underserved communities, both urban and rural, the cheap, junk, processed, fast food goes in those neighborhoods. They are not in wealthy neighborhoods. And that the healthy, organic, fresh, local produce go to wealthier neighborhoods. There's no ifs, there's no ands, there's no buts. We know this for a fact. And this is why I don't understand what is the problem. Why aren't people up in arms? We have a two systems here when it comes to the food system. And I understand that as a farmer, there's a cost and a value of food, but you cannot make the assumption that people in underserved communities don't deserve the same quality of food and that they don't deserve to have healthy food options. I don't want to see together side by side the Wendy's, the McDonald's, the Caesars, the Subway. I don't want to see that. And so let's talk about what food apartheid is because food apartheid is based along racial and economic and demographic lines. And we know this. And so for people to not understand something that is blatant, racism, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's right in front of us. And so how do we make sure that we get that cheap, subsidized food system out of these areas, out of these underserved communities, get this mechanism where everybody is focusing on the subsidized food system, this charity-based food system that's not sustainable. In my neighborhood alone, I can go put in my zip code and 10 to 20 food banks will show up. That's not how to feed people. We, don't, we, we can't feed people. It's, it's supposed to be for emergency purposes. It's not supposed to be a way of living. And now it's becoming a way of living for so many people. And the way to fix that, the way to fix that is economics. The way to fix a subsidy, cheap food system is to bring in jobs, bring in an economic stimulus, in underserved communities so that they have jobs that they can buy fresh produce. But as long as we have this system, people are making money on the backs of us. 
at every food pantry or soup kitchen, there needs to be collaboration with an agency that can provide jobs, an agency that can provide housing, an agency that talks about domestic violence. Because you've got to ask people, why are they there? Why are they there? If they're there because they need a job, here are the services. But if you're just handing out food without asking the question why, you are, we are just repeating this cycle. And I want the cycle to be broken. And it has to be through economics, financial literacy, economic development. It has to be for people to start thinking about how do I own a business? How do I be an entrepreneur? I want to see that in underserved communities, but it's not going to happen because it's based on a power structure system of people in power that don't want to give up their power and they don't want to share their power. And a lot of us are trying to tackle this problem by forming cooperatives, by forming our own businesses, about working with community-based organizations that focus on social capital and getting people to understand the value that they have in their community. And that starts with our dollars. And this is what we're trying to do within our community, is trying to form a cooperative collaboration and making people to understand the power that they have, the social power that they have, and that they can fight this, and we can fight this together. And to build our own infrastructure, our own inner economy, that's based on our needs and our wants. Because no one is out there, you know, that, that cares about that. Gosh, I said a mouthful. Damn, I didn't know I was on a tangent. No, I appreciate that. And I, I'm wondering, do you, do you think that there was a point in time where New York was serving all of its neighbors, all of its residents, more effectively um, and allowing for a food system that was built on on smaller players and and on independent entrepreneurs in a way that maybe doesn't exist today has has that changed or or do you think is it this underlying and growing wealth and inequality that has sort of over overtaken even that that opportunity for um, you know what it's, it's, like it's, it's changed it's, it's the dynamics of like I said we are now so in, entrenched on on capitalism or making money we forgot mm-hmm. about social capital we, we forgot we forgot about the human element of people it's about making money making money making money and that's our focus. And, 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 and we don't care who we hurt, who's left behind, because if we care, we wouldn't have poverty, we wouldn't have hunger, we, have, we wouldn't have homelessness. There's enough wealth to go around. But why, why do we have it? Why do we have it? Because we have relied on a system that in order to feel that you've made it, is based on monetary value. How much money you have, how many homes you have, how many cars you have, the clothes that you wear. It's all based on materialistic things. And it's not based on building community so that everybody has the same opportunity. Again, it's based on equity, not based on equality, based on equity, giving everyone the same chance to achieve. But that's not happening. 
That's not happening. The rich get richer, the poor gets poorer. And the rich uses their wealth to get ahead. And so what I'm seeing now is that it's a broken system. It's a broken food system. It's a broken economy system. Do you know within the next 10, 20 years that the wealth inequality amongst black will be almost close to zero? We'll have, we'll have no wealth. We're losing land. We're losing farmers. It's happening now. It is happening now. And unless things don't change around, don't change, then it's going to be a great increase of the have and have not. And so it's going to take a movement. It's, it even may take a revolution of young people, of people saying, you know what, this has to stop. It has to stop. It has changed tremendously from when I grew up and I could see everyone had equal access to food. Now, yeah, equal access goes to people who have money. There's no equal access because we know where the cheap and the unhealthy food goes. We know where it goes and we know where the healthy food goes. It's not rocket science. It's such a problem in in New York City where the food access is incredibly poor in in some neighborhoods and it that the problem is only growing as real estate suddenly becomes more valuable than long-standing groceries through grocery stores throughout the city and it's it's growing inequality and it's just growing uh food insecurity for everyone in every neighborhood which you know I I feel like we need some breakthrough solutions to make farm stands like your dad's more viable in more places now. Let me tell you something. Things are going to change. Things are going to change, you know, because I know I have a lot of people, a lot of friends that are trying to work behind the scenes to start really realizing where our wealth is and where our strength is and it's based with our community. Because, again, educating our community about financial, financial literacy, educating our community on how to spend their dollars, you know, um, educating our community on how we need to support one another so you don't go to the first direct. You know, you, don't be, you, you, you come to, the, to that farm stand that's on the corner. And so that's what it's going to take. It's going to take this cohesiveness within communities to say, you know what, how do we support one another? How do we change this economy and this food system, knowing that our strength, our strength is within who we are as a community, and that is going to make sure that the dollars that are spent stays in our communities and is not extracted, that the power structure is within our communities, that our voices are being heard. People coming together and understanding the power they have in terms of social capital and to understand that value that we have as a people and as a community. And then how do we help one another? How do we get through and change one another by having our own businesses and making sure that we're supporting our own people and our own community? How have your neighbors responded to you becoming a farmer? And you you come back to the community to sell through the farmer's market. Mm -hmm. Do people, I mean, you must have... I imagine a lot of support from the community, people excited to, to see you come back and, and serve um, home. Do, do you feel like people, are they understanding that, that value chain and how it benefits the community to be 
supporting the farmer's market to supporting you um, as a grower? Well, I, they love it. First of all, we have two farmers markets. We have farmers market, a high end farmers market, which is on Union Square, and we have the uh, the low end farmers market, which is in the Bronx. So we're going into our seventeenth year, and our farmers market at Union Square, we're going into our fifth year. So there's a dynamics of people with with wealth that are at the Union Square market, and also gives us a chance for people to see, wow, they're black farmers. Yes, Lori and I win. That's a help. We are the farmers, so for people to see four women, two are women of color, three of us are LGBTQ women, unheard of, to see that at Union Square Market, remarkable. People are excited that we're there. And then the Bronx Market, people are excited because I live in that neighborhood. I talk about the cost and value of food. I am surrounded by a charity-based food system. I'm surrounded by the fast food restaurants. And so getting people to understand that there's a cost and value of the food that is at this market is important. Our food is not free. I'm going to say it again. Our food is not free. And so having that conversation, because I get people that come and they'll have only about the price. So why is the collard greens $2 a pound? When I can get them for, well, I can get them for 79 cent, 99 cent from the store of the block. And I got to explain to them, I said, well, the store of the block, that's 79 cent pounds of collard greens, you don't know where they've been stored, if they've been sprayed with pesticides and insecticides, how long they've been sitting in a trailer or a truck. I'm the farmer. I can tell you, I grew this. And so having that conversation, and I said, and there's a value in the course for my time and the people that are here, every Tuesday, there's a course of value with that. And that the money that you're paying pays pays me and pays everybody that you see here and having that conversation people understand and i think people take it for granted that people in underserved communities don't understand that and they don't understand it because they're living in a food system that for so long has been given them free food and so their relationship to food is that hey this charity is free you know it's like no but another thing I would say, too, is that we never turn any way, anyone away if they're hungry. Because we know how it is for our people trying to make it. Of course, we're not going to deny anyone because they're hungry. However, we also want people to understand that there's a cost and value of food. And we need to have that conversation time and time again in underserved communities, and which we don't. But I do. I want to talk about uh, black farmers, the statistics that came out last month from the census of agriculture um, were not, not good news. Okay. So let me just get myself, let me just calm myself down because again, that census came out and, and when you look at that census, 57,765 farmers in New York state, 164 black farmers. So, I'm going to take a deep breath. I am challenging Governor Cuomo. I am challenging him and Commissioner Ball with those numbers. I already have setting up a meeting with Commissioner Ball and a group of farmers because our next step is to the governor. Because I told I said if the governor knew those numbers, he will be appalled because you, how do you talk about a food system 
How do you talk about a sustainable food system? How do you talk about the growth of a food system when there are only 164 black farmers in New York State? And so I am challenging the governor, Governor Cuomo, to sit down in a room with some black farmers and for him to sit, where do we go wrong? Where are we going wrong? What is it that you want? What is it that you need? And our faces and our voices need to be at the table. Not other voices, not other organizations. Our faces and our voices need to be at the table so the governor can hear what has happened. Because without people understanding how the dynamics of this school system work, if we don't do something, 10, 20 years, there'll be no black farmers. And so we need to sit down with the governor and explain to him the dilemma and then explain to him that there needs to be money, resources, opportunities placed into this group of people so that we can grow the next group of farmers, not only young farmers, not all farmers of color, all farmers, but there needs to be some sort of intention with black farmers because we are diminishing in our land and our numbers. And so I'm putting it out there, Governor Cuomo, you need to sit down with the 164 that wouldn't even fill up an auditorium and ask the question, why? Why are these numbers this one is number one? But then ask, answer the question, this is what I am going to do to make sure we can increase those numbers. So by the time I leave as governor of New York, those numbers are going to go up. There are programs in place. There are money that's being infused to grow that population. And finally, New York State has your back. So that at the, the next census, we will see an increase in number instead of the decrease in numbers. Well, I, I certainly hope so. Do you, starting a farm is in, is incredibly difficult for so many reasons. I wonder what do you think the black um, farmer community needs and how there's inspiration, there's like recruitment needed, and there's also like resources and like uh, technical training and, and support that have got to come into play as well. Right. So, for instance, I, I'm on the council for um, food and hunger policy, and I already said this at the last meeting. I can't sit back and watch two million, three million, four million going to community-based organizations. Where's our money? Where is the millions of dollars going to Soul Fire? Millions of dollars going to farm school? Millions of dollars that are helping people up in Albany. We're growing the next wave of black and brown farmers. We don't have the money. We're not, we, I don't see the million dollars coming our way. We need, to sit, we need to sit down with the governor. And the money needs to be put into these programs. They need to be put into the programs that are going to educate black farmers, but also to get land and housing. You know, and so... No, he needs to be, the governor needs to be in a room with as many black farmers in New York State as possible so he can hear the lack of resources, the lack of education, 
the racism that still exists. Give us the millions of dollars. Give Soul Fire a couple of millions of dollars. Give other agencies that are working with farmers of color in terms of education, in terms of opportunities. There should be land set aside. And, and also there should be instructors that, and, 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 and resources of people that look like us. We are the extension agents that look like us. Where are the people right that, that downtown in Hanson Street that look like us? Right now, we have the meeting with Commissioner Ball that's coming up. The next step is Governor Cuomo, and he's going to be shameful. He's going to be shameful of the fact that, wait a second, we got 57,000 farmers and only 164 are black, and we're talking about sustainability. We're talking about growing farming in this, country, in, in, in this state. We're talking about equity. There's no equity with those numbers. So, Governor Cuomo, you listen to this. The next step <laughs> is that you got to meet with us mm-hmm. because that's the only way things are going to change. And we don't want other people speaking for us. You need to hear our voices and see those numbers, those dismal numbers, or how much money those 164 farmers are bringing in compared to the rest of the farmers in your, in your state. So, Lizzie, I got, it's, it's that time. So, you know, it's that farm time. To get I know. Back to work. It's farm time. It's May. Man, Governor Cuomo needs to meet with you. I, I had not looked at those numbers specific to New York State. I was just looking at them nationally, which they're really bad. But when you think about just one, you know, less than 200 black farmers in New York, that that mm-hmm. is a, just abysmal. Um, mm-hmm. So. Karen, thank okay, you for your work. Thank you. Thank for... you, Lindsay. You're the best. <laughs> well, you you are too. Thank you so much. Okay, bye now. <laughs> bye. You can learn more about Karen at riseandrootfarm.com as well as at blackurbangrowers.org. They have an incredible conference that happens once a year in the fall. We have a new review this week from Casey Crop. Casey writes, NYFC's pod offers succinct informed discussions surrounding the future of our food and the farmers working to grow this food. As a young farmer, I can say this pod is hitting on all the right topics. Thank you, Casey. Thanks for listening. And thank you for writing us a review. If you haven't written us a review already, please take a minute to do so. You just go to the bottom of your iTunes, put in a star rating. And if you would, we would love if you'd actually write in a few words to tell us what you like or what you don't like. And they really do help us do better work They also help more people find these episodes. Thanks to our podcast intern, Maya Benayan, for her hard work creating all of the show transcripts. If you haven't checked it out, we have all of them at youngfarmers.org. Thanks to our wonderful and talented editor, Hannah Beal. This show was recorded at the studios of Radio Kingston. We'll talk to you next week.